Well, welcome to ANC today. This is Palm Sunday, which is why we didn't bring any palms, because we don't even have an Easter service. Next week, um, if you're new around here and you don't know what we do for Easter, it's my favorite thing we do. Um, we go downtown and we spread out tables and tablecloths and centerpieces and bring dominoes and cards, and we feed the homeless community downtown under 35 and 6 ish, seven, between 7th and 8th. Where that weird art installation that looks like, like whale bones comes up under 35, that's how you know you're there. Um, so anyway, so we're a, little, we're a little eccentric when it comes to Easter season, which is odd because uh, I worked for a church before I came here that got about 65,000 people through their weekend services. So we just kind of don't, don't go that route. But anyway, welcome to ANC. It's great to be here. How many are grateful that it's not hailing as you're trying to get to church today? Yeah, that was not very helpful. Um, we have a lot to do this morning. I think actually if we just read the texts from today's lectionary readings, it would take us all the way through the time that Trey's going to allot for me. You know he's the keeper of the clock, right? You know when he paces back and forth and starts playing with the lights. So if we just read the texts, we would fill our time today. But I'm going to try to jump in and try to accomplish something a little ambitious. But here's what we're going to try to figure out. How do we wrap up a season of Lent, which is really a spiral down into anticipation and a real acquaintance with death and loss in real time, Preparing ourselves for Easter. Now, again, we don't do an Easter service, so I'm going to try to wrap everything into one little bundle today. And I doubt I will get it done, but we're going to give it a shot. So this is the day that the church across the globe commemorates Jesus' triumphal entry. Now, I mean triumphal in a special way, because as we're going to figure out really quick, this isn't the kind of triumph that anyone was expecting. Right? I'm not referring to an old motorcycle. This is what we call his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, looking in the rearview mirror, but this didn't feel triumphal or triumphant for the people following Jesus. Jerusalem was the very center of religious power and political sort of gravitas of his day. And this was a very dangerous city if you're going to roll in having made these claims on record. Let me just list a few. I am the giver of eternal life. I am one with the Father. I am the one who forgives sin from Mark 2. I'm the bread of life, John 6. Jesus would say, I'm the good shepherd, John 10. I'm the true vine, John 15. I am the great I am. The layers begin to build, and the last place you want to step up with this messaging is in the heart of power in Jerusalem. I'm the giver of living water. I'm the light of the world, the future judge, the Lamb of God. And Jesus went on and on, mostly in the book of John. There would be no way to avoid the high-speed head-on collision about to happen if Jesus and his boys rolled their food truck right up into Jerusalem. No way to avoid the problems that are about to occur. And what's interesting is how little the disciples of Jesus actually knew what was coming at them. As many times as he warned them and telescoped it, almost in great detail, this was a total surprise. Let's read Matthew 21, verse 1 through 11. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. Interesting. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. This is divine theft, or grand theft Jesus, or something. I don't know. <laughs> if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this comes from Zechariah. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. Boy, would I love to have heard the scuttle between those guys going into, what, what, 
We're just going to roll up and take someone's caddy? Like, how's this going to work? Like, what are we going to tell these people? That would have been a fun conversation to hear. But it says, they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Notice this in verse 8. This will be our protagonist for today. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowd, there it is again, that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds, there they are again, answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray, very simply. Holy Spirit, bring these words to life today. Let us see you and let us see ourselves. In your name we pray. Amen. Why do we pray when we crack the word? Why do we pray to be enlightened when we open the Bible? We answer questions around here, so if it makes you nervous, just look at your shoes. You'll be okay. Why do we do that? Anyone? That's right. We're inviting the teacher to teach us the word, right? Anyone else? Why do we pray? Say, open our eyes to this. I feel like it sets our heart. Okay. What our intention is. Good. Good, very good. So here's what I would say, and I'm going to take a little side here, and I won't charge you any extra for this. Stop, pause the clock. No, don't pause the clock. Here's what we say when we say that the word is God-breathed and divinely inspired. I want to clarify this for us here. What we're saying is that it is utterly trustworthy that it is totally reliable, these words right here in the scriptures, that from its original writing to the preserving of those texts through very tough times in history to the ongoing translation into hundreds of languages and the ongoing reading of them in community with an open heart and mind, what we are saying is that these stand head and shoulders above anything ever written, anything ever said about God and God's activity on earth. This stands alone. The scriptures Stand alone. You hear me? The highest praise that we can possibly level on these scriptures, on these writings, is simply this, that they are true. That they are true. They produce life, and it takes a fierce, and here's the thing, here's why we invite the Holy Spirit. It takes a fierce determination to remain in relationship to an interpretive community so that we can fully grasp what's going on here. I would submit to you that this is stuff that's not designed to be fully understood or lived into individually. This is the community product and language around the happenings of God and the man Jesus Christ and in his ancient ancient people. And it's designed for community consumption. And everything about these words are true and reliable and trustworthy and produce life. Here's another way to say it. I think the Bible never stops reading us. Figure that out. So we don't just read it. We bring ourselves to it as a community again and again and again for guidance and for truth. Question for you. What access to the life of Jesus would we have were it not for these words? We would have the inner witness, but we would have no other way to navigate. So this stuff matters. This is why we pray and invite the Holy Spirit. It's not as if he isn't here already. It's that we need to settle down our hearts and tune in our spirits to what he has to say for us. It's as if it was a mirror, and it redefines us on every looking, on every gaze it redefines us, and it speaks to us about who God is. Now, that's for free. Back to the story for today. I'm going to try not to laugh. I've got this little scar on the side of my face, and when I laugh, I feel like I've got to hold my cheek like this. It's a long story, but when you grow up a hippie kid in Florida and on the Pacific coast of Mexico, sunscreen is for suburban white families, so we had baby oil, and so we have skin cancer, so we're dealing with that, but, but we're going to be just fine. 
This is the beginning of a fateful week we call Passion Week. It was my favorite week in Mexico growing up. We called it Holy Week. All of the Indians from all over the regions would bring their fantastic wares into the city square, and they would sell this amazing stuff. The entire week of Holy Week, kids are out of school. It is a nonstop party. This is Passion Week. This triumphal entry into Jerusalem begins it all. And this may be the very most depicted series of events in all of art history. This is for you, Mark. All of art history in stone, in song, in word, on canvas. What's about to happen for the next several days is probably the most focused time in all of human history. It matters because it keeps revealing to us who God is. Can somebody drop some more chairs? We've got people in the back standing. Everybody look around. Whoop, whoop, whoop. It's good to be full this morning. Thanks, Caleb. We've got front row, y'all. Nobody wants to sit after the bukers. Sat up front. Nobody's like, I'm not sitting up there last week. We're about to go into Holy Week in a very intentional series of events. Now watch this. In the next few days, I'm just going to chart it out for you. Jesus will charm the crowd. He'll get in big trouble with the religious leaders. He'll have his last meal with his disciples. He'll be betrayed in the garden. He'll be hauled before a kangaroo court of religious nationalists. He'll hang on a criminal's cross. He'll be buried in a rich man's tomb. And he will defeat death by rising from the dead. So busy week ahead. It all starts with some logistical planning, and this all makes me think of Trey. So love this, right? Thought that goes in behind the event. The fact that this processional, and we, got, we wouldn't know this, but I'm going to help, help us see this. The fact that this processional was to begin at the Mount of Olives was not a detail missed on the disciples of Christ and on the crowd that builds around it. You see, this is what Zechariah was talking about when everything, when history would be set straight. This is what the prophets foretold. Think of this as a first century's ticker tape parade, if you have to know what we're about. It's more than just a little ride on a donkey. This isn't the petting zoo. It's not the county fair. This is an intentionally symbolic ride into Jerusalem, into the halls of power, offered for those who were paying attention to the connection between ancient prophecy and the life of Christ. You know, it's kind of funny. If you follow Jesus and his merry little band of blokes around, there's these two sounds that always happen in quick succession, right? Like in the fire swamp, you hear the click and the poof of the little fire flame. I know, your kids didn't like it either, but it's still the most quotable movie of all time, next to Nacho Libre. But there's these two sounds that always happen around Jesus. Everything he does, there's this, two sounds. The first one is, huh? And the second one is, right? His disciples always say, What? And Jesus is always like, oh, you guys, I've told you how this is going to go down. He warned these guys about everything, and yet surprise is the default position if you're hanging in the crowd Jesus is in. I've always focused on Jesus and the disciples during this story, but as I suggested before, I want this year the protagonist that follows, that catches our attention to be the crowd. Let's talk about this crowd. You know, they risk everything by marching with this guy into this city during this week. Passover week was when it all went down, and following the new latest, greatest guy in the top 40 meant something very significant. There was risk involved here. You know, this isn't the first time that human souls get together to march for freedom and for justice, but it certainly brings dignity and gravitas to that yearning that we see repeated over and over in history. For me, this conjures up scenes of Selma, Alabama. It conjures up scenes, many scenes on the, on the mall in Washington, this makes me think of South African youth under apartheid. It makes me think of people facing down tanks in Tiananmen Square. This march makes me think of the Arab Spring across the globe. They were saying something by marching with this messianic hopeful. You see, the soul set free, which inevitably finds others to set free, 
is always going to stand in the face of power and opposition. It will always be the only threat to empire. When people gather together and say, we're not going to take it anymore, the prophecy said we'd be free and now is our moment. This is what's building around Jesus, this crowd. The same people who had eaten with Jesus in the countryside, who had seen him touch the sick and the outcast, who had heard him recast the die of contemporary ethics, recharacterize the ancient law and summarize the prophet, this group of people was hoping that this would be the end of their suffering. And with them go our expectations. They were hoping this would be the moment. This is why they said, son of David, Hosanna in the highest. But Jesus knew that exactly none of what he was about to say was going to fall well was going to be palatable to the powers in the city at the time. There's a march about to happen, and let's keep an eye on this crowd, because here's my suggestion to us today. This crowd is us. And honestly, it's the evolution of the crowd that interests me most, how they change so quickly. Jesus isn't really all that complicated, guys. Let's face it. He's a pretty simple dude. It's the crowd that's swerving all over the road trying to figure out what's going on. Pretty much everyone who shares space with Jesus understands that total freedom is intuitive and they get around him and they feel it. They come alive. They get healed. Things change. No one struggles being in the presence of Jesus. It's the follow through where we get stuck. It's not the initial freedom, but it's doing what he did and repeating that and creating the space around others that he creates around us. Everything is off on the right foot as they begin this march from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. But by the end of the week, the crowd will understand that Jesus' particular brand of freedom, the same freedom that they cry out for, that they've been waiting for from ancient times, is going to mess everything up because the only way to freedom is going to be down through death and self-sacrifice. Here's what I mean. The voices of the crowd, what do I mean when I say evolution? The voices of this crowd will go from Hosanna to give us Barabbas, and in case it's not clear what that means, just crucify him. Those will be the words of this crowd within a week. In case you feel like God's plans are universally acceptable and you think, ah, oh, this crowd, they're fickle, they're weak. In case you think everyone just gets this and can follow Jesus through these paces of downward spiral into death to defeat death in the grave, just remember that Jesus himself begs God for any other outcome in the garden during this week. Remember that? When tradition tells us that he sweat drops, droplets of blood, his struggle was so intense with God, he knew what this was going to cost, and he said, please, let there be another way. But ultimately, he yields his will and does what he sees the Father doing. He lays down his life even unto death. But this week, the crowd looks at that cup of suffering and says, how about no? How about we opt out? For the most part, except a few women, no one was there when Jesus finally gave up his spirit on the cross. This crowd has gone. It's dissipated. It disappeared. You know I'm right. You know this crowd is us. Hold space for a second. Think about your life. And I can feel the waves of shame rolling over us even now as we think of all the ways that we have come up short. But hang on. There's gospel in this book. There's gospel in these stories. Before you make the mental list of all of your failures again, as if the world needs another list of ways that you've come up short, what do you suppose Jesus' response is to this crowd? Anyone? Are you curious about that? Here's the one thing I want to know the most. What does Jesus have to say about this indecisive, flip-flopping crowd? Wouldn't he be enraged at the brevity of their passion? 
at the fickle nature of their commitment. Surely Jesus is irate about their willingness to be fed when he's slinging hot, fresh, grain-free tortillas in the desert. That's for you, Miguel. But so unwilling to follow when he says, but this is what it's gonna look like. Surely Jesus was irate at this crowd. Anyone could justify that. A cross to say, I love you? No way, Jesus, that's not how it goes down. No one's gonna touch you, Jesus, says Peter, right? And we push the cup away. You know, maybe we're marching with the wrong guy. You know that part of the crowd that stays sort of in the back, kind of off to the side, so you can slink away in case anything happens? You know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever been to one of those marches? You're not up there in the middle, you're kind of like on the fringe, you know, like reading the paper, right? Jack Handy, Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy. Remember that from Saturday Night Live? He says, you know what I would do if I was ever being drugged behind a horse? I'd just be, you know, by a cowboy in the Old West, I'd just be reading a magazine in case he turned around just to say, you know what, it's no big deal. Never mind. <laughs> but you know the part of the crowd I'm talking about where we're sort of in, we're sort of not, we're sort of there. We're, if it all crumbles, we're just gonna be the first ones to pop into Cafe Medici on Congress. And yeah, yeah, it's just, you know, circumstance kind of a thing. A cross, seriously? Remember, This crowd is us. What is God's attitude towards us? See, what's fascinating about Holy Week is this is perhaps the most triumphant, victorious time in the life of Christ. But it's perfectly matched to our weakest moment. Our weakest moment. Within one week, Hosanna becomes crucify him. When Jesus is lifted up, ironically, on a Roman execution stake, although he promised and said this is how it was going to go down, when he looks at the remain, what remained of that crowd, which is primarily women named Mary, like three out of five or four out of five are named Mary, when he looks at the crowd, do you remember what he said on the cross? Luke 23 preserves it this way. It says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And my suggestion to us this week is that not only are we that crowd, but these words are for us. These words are for us. What could he possibly have been talking about? Nobody accidentally nails a Jew to a cross. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, they knew what they were doing. Who was he talking to? What was it that the crowd didn't understand? What is it that we don't understand about this peculiar man who demonstrates God's willingness to suffer in front of a jeering crowd without so much as a defense? What is it that we don't understand about him? What is it that we don't understand when we look at the human face of God? We knew, we know at the beginning of the week, the crowd was totally on board. They totally got it. They made the connection. This is the one, Hosanna, to the son of David. We knew at the beginning of the week, they knew about it. They understood. They made the connection. And we also know that by Thursday night, Jesus would spell out what was about to happen in the next 24 hours to his inner circle, demonstrating once and for all that victory and glory come always accompanied with a wash basin and a drying towel. And that's when it goes sideways. This is servanthood. This is laying your life down that Jesus is trying to say. And they're thinking, wait, wait, no, this is glory. This is our moment. And to Jesus, it's one and the same, but it's not one and the same to the crowd. We know that Friday's legal ordeals before the religious powers called the Sanhedrin, as well as the governmental entities, which would be Pontius Pilate, would end with these words, our words, crucify him from the adoring crowd. 
And while the church establishment of Jesus' day, the Sanhedrin barely flinched when given the opportunity to condemn this man to death, recall that Pontius Pilate had a very wise and discerning wife, and she said what? Wash your hands. Have nothing to do with this. And so who is the onus put back on to say the final condemnation, crucify this man? He's not who we thought he was. The crowd. Maybe we did get it. Maybe we were just unwilling to follow his prescription of sacrifice, of death, of loss into resurrected life. Here's what I think. We knew exactly what we were doing when we proclaimed him son of David. What we have come to reject is not the hope of new life. It's the way Jesus proposes we get there. Every claw digs in. Every heel goes down. The irony of this week is that this is Jesus' supreme human moment matched with our utter inability to follow and to track. Now, I know that we know how many ways that we have failed to follow through with total obedience in the ways that God has asked us. I know that we know how many ways we've fallen asleep in the garden. You remember that story. I'm trying to synthesize the whole week for us. I know that we know all the ways that we have dropped the ball, that we have quit when things got tough, and I know that we know what slinking away into the safety of the crowd feels like because the way of Jesus feels worse than what drew him to him in the first place. I know we know what that feels like. And I know that we're afraid that God is ashamed of us, of the mess we've made of our lives, of how fast our Hosanna became, crucify him, give us Barabbas. You see, Barabbas was an insurrectionist and a murderer, but he started outright. He was on the right path. He wanted a better future, just like the crowd and just like you and me, and he identified with them in a special way because we like someone who stands up in the face of power, don't we? We like one who rises to the occasion, and so we're attracted to this criminal who jumped the rails. He was a man of conviction and passion, and the problem is, even though he wanted what Jesus wanted, the way Jesus proposes we get to freedom and new life stands in diametric opposition to the way of Barabbas, and yet that was the way we preferred Taking all of this into consideration, Jesus' words to the crowd, let me remind you, are simply this, forgive them, Father, for they don't know any better. Yet. You see, it took Jesus 30 years to prepare for this level of obedience. And it was a little tattered and frayed because John preserves for us this prayer in the garden that begs God to do it some other way. 30 years he prepared to drink this cup. Whatever he did during that time, we actually have no record of it. But let me just suggest this. It takes time to lean into this posture of deep and unreserved surrender. And when we are our own condemning voice, which we are, no enemies necessary, no enemies needed. We've got it all on board. It's part of the operating system. And when we're reminding ourselves that we slinked away, we finally begin to understand that death was the way to life. Even still, Christ the Son begs God on our behalf Don't hold them accountable for their unwillingness to take this cup yet. He stands between the Father and humanity and says, let them catch up. They're gonna see. They're gonna catch up. Hear those words today. Forgive them, Father. You, you, me, crowd, us. Forgive them, Father, for they don't yet understand. I want you to internalize this image of the eternally merciful face of Christ in the face of our abandon. That's what God looks like. That's who Jesus is. 
Hear the words of the Apostle Paul this morning as he describes the mindset of Christ from Philippians 2. We're going to end with this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And now he describes, what is that mindset? Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the very, in the appearance of, let's see, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and in case you wondered, also under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the mindset of Christ that would walk through a week that we can scarcely grasp with our minds and would wrap it all up, this trip to the highest heavens, this glorification, this rising up so all can see the heart of God. He would get there by going down and it makes no intuitive sense. And when we get weak, his words to you, his words to me are, Father, forgive them. They're catching up. They're catching up. Now, I don't know what this means to you. But hear me, God owns the outcome. Every knee will bow. Every knee will recognize that this is the, actually, this is the only way. This is not a religion. This is the only way. Every knee will bow. So my question for you this morning is, can you follow him? Can you follow him through the rising of the crowd? to the shocking image of servanthood, to betrayal in the garden, to violence, to kangaroo courts of nationalism that just find him scandalous, to dragging his cross through a city that sneered and jeered, to hanging defenseless on a wooden cross into the grave where we don't know the outcome until Easter morning. Can you follow that, Master? This is the only message of Christ. This is the only message of the church that actually preaches itself. And I can't think of any better way to celebrate this journey down than by spreading tables under a bridge next week. Because none of this makes any sense if it just makes us right in our head. This is about people. This is about justice. Easter people don't get stuck in their head. We carry this out in the world. And so that's the week that's ahead of us. So let me pray for us. Musicians, join me.